Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we have a bit of an unusual video here in Virtual Legality. Usually we're talking about technology in this space. We love video games. We love pop culture. We love Twitter and Facebook and Google and everything else. But today we're going to talk about something a little bit different. We're going to be talking about sports. But before you change the channel already, know this. The case that we're going to talk about today is one of the biggest in sports law history on amateurism, on the NCAA, how it functions in the United States. And more importantly, for those of you that have been following virtual legality for a long time, it has direct ramifications for how the Supreme Court is currently thinking about antitrust law and what it is required to do by the way the Sherman Act reads. Because this, like Epic versus Apple, like some of the other cases we've discussed in this space, is a Sherman Act Section 1 complaint. Now, before we get into the nitty-gritty here and we go through an entire lawsuit, for those of you that haven't been in virtual legality a long time, you might not know that I'm a big, big fan of college sports. I am a Michigan graduate. I've been a fan of the Wolverines forever and ever. And we're going to be going over a little bit about what it means to the NCAA, what it means to college football, what it means to me as part of this case But for those of you that aren't in the United States, and Google tells me that's a lot of you, it's a majority of my viewers here, understand that the way that college sports works in the United States is that these student athletes, as the NCAA likes to call them, aren't allowed to be paid any kind of salary. They are amateur athletes. I think there are probably a lot of jurisdictions around the world that follow a model similar to this one. But as they have not been paying their student athletes, the NCAA over the last few decades has grown and grown and grown until every single coach everywhere is making hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars, and administrators are making millions, and presidents and commissioners are making millions, and virtually everybody but the student athletes are making that money. Now, this particular case doesn't end that. It ends only a small portion of that in an affirmation of a prior decision. For those of you that still want to change the channel, who can blame you? I will leave you with the too long didn't watch before we get into it, in which I tweeted the Supreme Court's 9-0 unanimous decision in Alston is both a stinging indictment of the NCAA, complete with Kavanaugh calling all its rules into question, and a strong defense of markets and the court's overall reluctance to second-guess business. It is, in legal terms, a banger. And... This case is, in fact, a banger. It has things to take away from both the perspective of somebody that wants to defend, say, Apple in Epic versus Apple and the other person on the side of that that wants to defend Epic or that just wants to see the NCAA done away with. As I said in my thumbnail, what the NCAA decided to do in this case is at least as interesting as everything else that the court says here because it was their strategy and their decision-making that was so poor that led them into what I've described as a slow-motion suicide because they elected to appeal a decision they didn't need to. They lost 9-0, and most importantly, they killed the kind of ambiguous precedent they had laid out for themselves in 1984. And let's talk about all of that. So, National Collegiate Athletic Association versus Sean Alston. There are a number of other conferences. The court and us here in virtual legality are going to shorten that to just the NCAA versus Mr. Alston. And here's how Justice Gorsuch delivering the opinion 9-0, no dissents, 
only one concurrence, and it's not a concurrence that really disagrees on any of the logic here, but actually would see it go further and is mostly dicta. We'll talk about that when we get to it because it is a very forceful, very fiery concurrence from Justice Kavanaugh. In the Sherman Act, Congress tasked courts with enforcing a policy of competition on the belief that market forces yield the best allocation of the nation's resources. And this is foundational to all of our conversations about antitrust law. And I think it's a part that even I have skipped in my 50 some odd episodes talking about antitrust law with you all. And that is the court system, whether it's a district court, whether it's the Supreme Court, is designed to enforce the laws as Congress puts them out there. Yes, they can judge on constitutionality, but that's not an issue here. What is at issue is what Congress intended by what they put in their words on the page, in the statute, in the Sherman Act. And the court says what Congress has established is that competition should be the strongest force in the land, that market forces yield the best allocation of the nation's resources. And you'll see at the end of this decision that Justice Gorsuch says it's not up for us to decide whether that's good policy. That's why it's a 9-0 decision. But that 9-0 is also worthy of note because there's a lot of things that Justice Gorsuch says here that you might not anticipate being positions that the Kavanaugh's or the Alitos of the world would take or the Breyers, the Sotomayors and the Kagan's, both conservative and liberal on this particular question, all have signed on to a very kind of circumspect analysis on the basis of antitrust law that says the court really shouldn't be sticking its nose into things unless there's an obvious big time reason to do so. And that's going to inform everything from NCAA actions down to Epic versus Apple and everything in between. The plaintiffs before us brought this lawsuit alleging that the National Collegiate Athletic Association, NCAA, and certain of its member institutions, the schools, violated this policy by agreeing to restrict the compensation colleges and universities may offer the student athletes who play for their teams. After amassing a vast record and conducting an exhaustive trial, the district court issued a 50-page opinion, which is long for district court, that cut both ways. The court refused to disturb the NCAA's rules limiting undergraduate athletic scholarships and other compensation related to athletic performance. At the same time, the court struck down NCAA rules limiting the education-related benefits schools may offer student-athletes, such as rules that prohibit schools from offering graduate or vocational school scholarships. Before us, the student-athletes do not challenge the district court's judgment, but the NCAA does. In essence, it seeks immunity from the normal operation of the antitrust laws and argues in any event that the district court should have approved all of its existing restraints. Now we got to unpack a little bit there, but it's the introductory paragraph. I wanted to just kind of lay out what this case is all about. You've got student athletes in basketball and football, what we think of as the revenue sports here in the United States. And they sued the NCAA saying, you guys are restraining trade. You are illegally keeping our labor prices down. And the court looked at everything before it and said, well, the NCAA probably has a case that they can do this, they can price fix with respect to money related to athletic performance, scholarships and the like. But the court also held that the NCAA couldn't limit things that related to educational benefits. And the court really didn't define it. In fact, opened the door for the NCAA to define it. And the NCAA didn't like that, wasn't good enough for them. Both sides wind up appealing to the Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit affirms the NCAA appeals to the Supreme Court to get its case heard, the student athletes drop it. They say, you know what? Educational related benefits is good enough. We won't fight this issue 
over the whole of the restrictions. So if the NCAA had just dropped it at the Ninth Circuit level, they would still be allowed to limit scholarships, to limit funding on anything related to actually playing basketball or football, but they would have lost some inchoate, ambiguous rights to limit schools' abilities to put out education-related benefits. Things like internships and awards for educational needs and things like that. The NCAA wasn't happy with that, and so they sued. By the time you get to the Supreme Court saying the NCAA is seeking immunity from the normal operation of the antitrust laws, you would not even have to read any further to know that the NCAA lost and hard. Because when you are described as seeking immunity from the normal operation of laws, that's the court saying, nah, nah, you're trying to get special treatment. We are rejecting all your arguments. And in fact, that is what Justice Gorsuch winds up doing here. Now we get a big history of uh, college football and various other college sports, basically trying to establish that college sports has always had a somewhat tenuous relationship with money. The commercialism extended to the market for student athletes, a longer description of money being spent. In 1948, the NCAA sought to do more than admonish these outward payments for athletes. It adopted what they called the sanity code. The code reiterated the NCAA's opposition to promised pay in any form, but for the first time, the code also authorized colleges and universities to pay athletes tuition. So the late 1940s, they come up with this plan, which has basically been in effect with modifications since then that people that played for the University of Michigan or any other college that was participating in the NCAA, those people could get scholarships. They could get pay for what would be their academics, but they couldn't get actual money. Now, whether or not you think every school's following that is up to you. Certainly a lot of fans of these various programs have a lot of thoughts on that. And the NCAA has, based on public pressure, been scooting ever closer to paying these student athletes because there is so much kind of movement, both from the athletes themselves and from the fans of the sports that look at this and say, really, the coach makes $7 million and the players that are actually on the field make nothing or $50,000 if you want to give them full credit for their scholarships or what have you. That doesn't really seem fair, necessarily. So the NCAA created a student assistance fund and the academic enhancement fund to assist student athletes in meeting financial needs, improving their welfare or academic support, or recognizing academic achievement. In 2018, as the court says, the NCAA made more than $84 million available through the student activities fund and more than $48 million available through the academic enhancement fund. It's $100 million. It's not nothing. The NCAA also permits its member schools to award up to up to, but no more than, two annual senior scholar awards of $10,000 for students to attend graduate school after their athletic eligibility expires. But this is what the court was leading to. The NCAA's current broadcast contract for the March Madness Basketball Tournament, three weeks in March and one week in April, is worth $1.1 billion annually. Those who run this enterprise profit in a different way than the student athletes whose activities they oversee. The president of the NCAA earns nearly $4 million per year. The plaintiffs are current and former student athletes in men's division one FBS football and men's and women's division one basketball. The student athletes challenge the current interconnected set of NCAA rules that limit the compensation they may receive in exchange for their athletic services. This court has long recognized that in view of the common law and the law in this country when the Sherman Act was passed, the phrase restraint of trade is best read to mean undue restraint. Now we're talking about Sherman. So let's back up a step. If you weren't following us for Epic versus Apple or any of the other discussions we've had about antitrust law, one of the things that is very interesting about this, and we talk about judge-made law uh, a lot in this space, is that the judges, the Supreme Court, and all the courts under them 
have interpreted this very specific law written by Congress to mean not what it actually says. If we actually look at this law, it says every contract in restraint of trade is declared to be illegal. That's the operative portion of the first sentence of the first section of the Sherman Antitrust Act. And the courts looked at that and said, well, they can't mean every contract in restraint of trade because every contract by its nature restrains trade in some form or fashion. If you promise to deliver widgets to Bob on a date certain, then you can't make those same widgets for Mary. And so you've restrained trade in some inchoate way. Or if you agree to a partnership and the partners agree not to work for a different company that would be competing with that company at the same time that they're members, then that's a restraint of trade. And the courts have said, well, we can't enforce that. But I don't think I've ever asked the question of you, the viewers or listeners of virtual legality, what do you think of that process. I've long talked about a certain textualism that certain justices use that I'm more inclined to use with the law as a kind of programming language. And every contract in restraint of trade is declared to be illegal is obviously farcical as the courts have rightly determined. But I do ask the question, should the legislature not be responsible for fixing that rather than the judges developing not only a completely different reading of the statute, but then related to that statute, an entire body of case law as to what it means to be undue or unreasonable and how the tests work. And this is where the NCAA actually found itself in this case, looking at a situation where they say this rule shouldn't apply, but this one should. And they go and they ask the arbiters of when a rule applies in this particular version of law. They will go to the Supreme Court and say, no, no, the rule of reason shouldn't apply. The Supreme Court says, hey, we make up these rules. The rule of reason should apply. And we'll see that writ large as we get further into this case. And, you know, to my eye, certainly judges do this throughout a lot of different areas of law, but I would much rather see the actual representatives of the people, Congress, get out there and make the rules actually match what they intend to do rather than putting something so broadly out here from a hundred years ago that is clearly a poor fit for things like iPhones and Epic and a poor fit for the NCAA and have the judges actually have to determine on a case-by-case basis what they are going to decide is undue when that word doesn't appear in the Sherman Antitrust Act anywhere. But as the court continues, determining whether a restraint is undue for purposes of the Sherman Act presumptively calls for what we have described as a rule of reason analysis. In applying the rule of reason, the district court began by observing that the NCAA enjoys near complete dominance of and exercises monopsony power in the relevant market. Now, if you aren't familiar with the term monopsony, you can just put monopoly in there. It essentially means a monopoly buyer instead of a monopoly seller, which usually when we talk about a monopoly, we're talking about somebody that's producing things and selling it as the only provider of that good. Monopsony is kind of the reverse of that. They're the only buyer of that good. So the district court in the NCAA case found that the NCAA was the only relevant buyer of amateur college football and basketball folks, that particular labor market. And they said, hey, once you have that monopsony power and then you say, we're not going to pay you over X, well, you've got a problem. Or as the district court said specifically, there are no viable substitutes as the NCAA's Division I essentially is the relevant market for elite college football and basketball. In short, the NCAA and its member schools have the power to restrain student-athlete compensation in any way and at any time they wish without any meaningful risk of diminishing their market dominance. Though member schools compete fiercely in recruiting student-athletes, the NCAA uses its monopsony power to cap artificially the compensation offered to recruits. And in a market without the challenged restraints, the district court found 
Competition among schools would increase in terms of the compensation they would offer to recruits and student-athlete compensation would be higher as a result. And notably, the court observed, the NCAA did not meaningfully dispute any of this evidence. So if you're sitting back now and saying, so the district court found that they used their monopoly powers of purchasing in this particular labor market to artificially reduce labor costs and that the court actually found that had these rules not been in place, those costs would have gone up, student athletes would have made more money and the NCAA doesn't dispute any of this. You sit back and say, how in the world did they not lose the case in its entirety? I don't blame you because absent the NCAA and America's love of college football and basketball and that kind of thing, you put it in any other kind of context and Kavanaugh will talk about this in his concurrence and it strikes you as obviously and critically illegal that you've got these competitors in a space that would pay more that they don't and the people that are harmed are the people that are selling their labor into that market and yet the NCAA didn't actually lose the bulk of their case and they appealed anyway. The district court next considered the NCAA's pro-competitive justifications for its restraints. Now, we'll talk about the rule of reason a little bit more as this video progresses, but if you remember it from our prior discussions, the rule of reason is essentially a three-pronged kind of approach. And again, it's all amorphous and equitable and whatever the judge determines, but it basically means prove to me that it hurts competition. Then the other side gets to prove that, well, maybe it's got these restraints and it hurts competition, but here are the pro-competitive reasons why we do it. And then if you get past that hurdle, it goes back to the original plaintiff who then has to say, well, there are ways you could get to that same pro-competitiveness uh, without having these restraints of trade. And that's what makes it undo. That's the rule of reason. It makes it unreasonable if there are other things you could do going so far as to not being allowed to do that thing that you're proposing to do at all. The NCAA's only remaining defense was that its rules preserve amateurism, which in turn widens consumer choice by providing a unique product. Amateur college sports is distinct from professional sports. And it's not an awful argument. There is certainly a difference in kind to watching a college football game versus a professional football game. And the question is, does the demand for the product, if it's offered by the University of Michigan or Ohio State or any of the other schools that you might be a fan of or just know about, does that demand go down if you know that they are getting salaries to play football for those schools, that they have a more mercenary approach, that they don't have that tie to the school that the NCAA has long believed, and I think not unjustifiably so, is what makes the product as attractive as it is. So the NCAA says, hey, we want to have this product. We want this because this is where the demand is. And if we get rid of it, the product just ceases to exist. It sounds a little bit like the walled garden kind of conversation we've had with Apple, where I've said, hey, you know, if that product ceases to exist, that might not be competitive. That might not be improving competition because a certain kind of thing doesn't exist any longer. So keep that in the back of your mind as we see how the court treats this particular question. Now, the court also notes that when the NCAA says that the people who like it, like it because it's amateur, are not the student athletes, that these are actually the consumers. This is you or I that's watching it on TV, and that's technically a different market. Admittedly, the court says, this asserted benefit accrues to consumers in the NCAA's seller side consumer market, rather than to student athletes whose compensation the NCAA fixes in its buyer side labor market. But... The NCAA argued the district court needed to assess its restraints in the labor market in light 
of their pro-competitive benefits in the consumer market, and the district court agreed to do so. In fact, there were a number of briefs that were filed on this case that said that's the wrong way to handle it, and you can't allow student athletes or anybody else to get harmed for the benefit of the product into a different market. And ultimately, the court, the Supreme Court, doesn't answer any of those questions because they don't relate to the specific case or controversy before it. So they're ignoring all these things, but they do note that the district court said, okay, we can use the benefits that you are purporting to see for the consumers, for the hoags of the world, and say that could potentially be pro-competitive enough to justify anti-competitiveness in a different market, the labor market, for the services rendered. But as the court put it, the evidence failed to establish that the, com- that the challenged compensation rules in and of themselves have any direct connection to consumer demand. At the same time, however, the district court did find that one particular aspect of the NCAA's compensation limits may have some effect in preserving consumer demand. Specifically, the court found that rules aimed at ensuring student athletes do not receive unlimited payments unrelated to education could play some role in product differentiation with professional sports and thus help sustain consumer demand for college athletics. Now, this is how the court ultimately makes its decision, right? And we're going in depth on the district court finding because if you aren't familiar with how the judiciary works, the finders of fact are that lowest court level or even a jury, and they determine a whole lot of this stuff. And then when you appeal it, the appeals court can only really look at certain aspects of the court case presented to it, primarily questions about law. They aren't fact-finding tribunals. That's why you sometimes see something get up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court holds for one party or the other, but then sends it back down to a fact-finding court because that's not what they're in the business of doing. They are law experts and not fact-finding experts. They could be if they had the witnesses in front of them and the evidence and all this other stuff, but they don't get that as part of their role, so they sometimes have to send it down. So when we're talking about these kinds of issues, we see the district court given a wide berth of deference where the Supreme Court says, okay, this is what they found. They found that maybe this rule does hold something. And even though that might to you or I sound like judge-made law, you're just kind of making things up. The court looks at it and says, well, you looked at hundreds and hundreds of pages of documents. We're not going to be in a better position to either reverse your making that up or make up something ourselves. So we'll just go with it. The court next required the student athletes to show that substantially less restrictive alternative rules existed that would achieve the same pro-competitive effect as the challenged set of rules. The district court emphasized that the NCAA must have ample latitude to run its enterprise and that courts may not use antitrust laws to make marginal adjustments to broadly reasonable market restraints. Now, that's a big sentence. That is a statement that all other things being equal, the district court says in order to breach that third barrier, in order to get a rule of reason victory, the plaintiffs have to understand that the business, the NCAA, gets ample latitude to run its business as it would see fit, and that the court system is not to be used to make marginal adjustments to things that are otherwise broadly reasonable. So the court winds up rejecting the student-athletes' challenge to NCAA rules that limit athletic scholarships to the full cost of attendance and that restrict compensation and benefits unrelated to education. These may be price-fixing agreements, but the court found them to be reasonable in light of the possibility that professional-level cash payments could blur the distinction between college sports and professional sports and thereby negatively affect consumer demand. Now, as we'll see in the rest of this case, that's kind of an interesting paragraph and interesting sentence because a lot of what the opinion here says goes against that somewhat, that there's a notion that even though you've got a price-fixing agreement, that might be okay because someone else likes a product that's premised on a price fix. 
That doesn't hold water for Kavanaugh, certainly. And there are lines that are suggestive of the fact that it doesn't hold water for the court in general here. But the court can only decide the case before it. And when the student athletes dropped their appeal on the basis of all of the rules, the Supreme Court, I think rightly, said we can't judge on that aspect anymore. So those rules that the Ninth Circuit affirmed will survive and we can only look at this disputed educational aspect. And what's interesting about that is it's entirely unclear what would have happened if the student athletes had brought that up. I don't think it would have been 9-0, but would they have won? Would the NCAA have won? It's it's not at all clear, except we, we can't tell you where Kavanaugh would have voted. He would have voted against the NCAA. We'll get there, I promise. The court reached a different conclusion for caps on education-related benefits, such as rules that limit scholarships for graduate or vocational school, payments for academic tutoring, or paid post-eligibility internships. Now, the NCAA cares about this because they think people are going to be able to go around them by using these various things, by having extra vocational schools, having extra internships, whatever it might be, to effectively act as recruiting payments. That's what the NCAA is fundamentally worried about, but that still doesn't make sense to appeal in the way that they did. Obviously, they weren't anticipating this kind of hammer that they got thrown from the NCAA, uh, but we'll see what that looks like in just a moment. The court enjoined the NCAA only from limiting education-related compensation or benefits that conferences and schools may provide to student-athletes playing Division I football and basketball. It was a limited kind of decision. The Court of Appeals affirmed in full, and that leads us to the Supreme Court question. Unsatisfied with this result, the NCAA asks us to reverse to the extent the lower court sided with the student-athletes. For their part, the student-athletes do not renew their across-the-board challenge to the NCAA's compensation restrictions. Accordingly, we do not pass on the rules that remain in place or the district court's judgment upholding them. It's what we just talked about. But the NCAA self-elected to make this appeal. Put simply, this suit involves admitted horizontal price fixing in a market where the defendants exercise monopoly control. No one disputes that the NCAA's restrictions, in fact, decrease the compensation that student athletes receive compared to what a competitive market would yield. No one questions either that decreases in compensation also depress participation by student athletes in the relevant labor market so that price and quantity are both suppressed. That's right. Somebody somewhere decided not to play football because they weren't interested in playing it at some level for only a scholarship and would have played it if they could have made a couple hundred thousand dollars. It's, of course, the case on the margins. And the NCAA concedes those points. With all these matters taken as a given, we express no views on them, says the Supreme Court. Instead, we focus only on the objections the NCAA does raise. Principally, it suggests that the lower courts erred by subjecting its compensation restrictions to a rule of reason analysis. Now, we've talked about rule of reason at length. And you can go and you can find probably any number of episodes in our antitrust epic playlist that talks about rule of reason, talks about the three-pronged approach that we mentioned earlier in this video, and that applies to almost every enforcement of the Sherman Antitrust Act by the courts because outside of the really, really bad things, hey, we've got a contract between two competitors that says they're going to fix prices in a deliberate attempt to hurt competition. Those are called per se illegal violations. Those are rare and few and far between. Almost everything in the big muddy middle relies on the courts to determine whether something was a reasonable or unreasonable restraint of trade, and they use the rule of reason to do it. The NCAA's argument here was apparently that the rule of reason shouldn't apply because 
they should get off on a less strict evaluation. It should be easier for the courts to say, "Uh uh-uh, no, you're fine. Now, the NCAA, as the Supreme Court says here, offers a few reasons why. Perhaps dominantly, it argues that it is a joint venture and that collaboration among its members is necessary if they are to offer consumers the benefit of intercollegiate athletic competition. We doubt little of this. Now, we're going to see this court actually uh, devalue all of these kind of complaints from the NCAA. But one of the things that you'll want to note here is that in 1984, there was a case where the NCAA had to deal with whether or not they were allowed to control television broadcast rights. And the Supreme Court ultimately held against the NCAA, but there were lines in that particular decision that talked about broadly the value of amateurism and the NCAA's role in defending amateurism. And part of that was the notion of having a sports league and joint ventures and members and rivals and things like that. And the NCAA appears to have believed that those lines in that earlier case, which remember, they didn't win, they lost, were going to be useful to them in this context, and they were going to get some kind of beneficial precedent out of appealing this particular case to the Supreme Court. Obviously, that didn't happen. But in terms of how you get to that thought process, you're silly. The NCAA should have known this, but you get there because you think you've got some backstop, which, as it turns out, you really didn't have. The court says, we don't doubt that you're some kind of joint venture, but being a joint venture does not guarantee the foreshortened review that the NCAA seeks. Most restraints challenged under the Sherman Act, including most joint venture restrictions, are subject to the rule of reason, which again we have described as a fact-specific assessment of market power and market structure aimed at assessing the challenged restraints' actual effect on competition. It's not even a real well-defined rule. It's we're going to assess things. Admittedly, the amount of work needed to conduct such a fair assessment can vary. There are things that are very easy. It is true only for restraints at opposite ends of the competitive spectrum. You got the bell curve. You got the far right and the far left. It's really, really bad or it's really, really not. And those are easy for us to determine even under a rule of reason. At one of the spectrum, the court says some restraints may be so obviously incapable of harming competition that they require little scrutiny. And then they reference a case where there was a 5% portion ownership of the relevant market. And they said, well, we don't even need to look at this because at a 5% level, if you just quit everything, you couldn't control market prices or market demand because the other 94, 95% of the market would instead control. At the other end, some agreements among competitors so obviously threatened to reduce output and raise prices that they might be condemned as unlawful per se or rejected after only a quick look. Recognizing the inherent limits on a court's ability to master an entire industry We take special care not to deploy these combinatory tools until we have amassed considerable experience with the type of restrained issue and can predict with confidence that it would be invalidated in all or almost all instances. Backing up a step. Yeah, we've got per se rules. We've got far edge cases where we can pick off very easily, but we know the inherent dangers of doing that. So we don't do that in all but the most obvious cases. None of this helps the NCAA, says the court. Unlike customers who would look elsewhere when a small van company raises its prices above market levels, the district court found, and the NCAA does not here contest, that student-athletes have nowhere else to sell their labor. Nor does the NCAA's status as a particular type of venture categorically exempt its restraints from ordinary rule of reason review. We do not doubt that some degree of coordination between competitors within sports leagues can be pro-competitive, 
Without some agreement among rivals on things like how many players may be on the field or the time allotted for play, the very competitions that consumers value would not be possible. Of course, that's easy to understand. You know what? Michigan and Ohio State have to agree that there's going to be 11 people on each side of the field for Ohio State to beat my poor Wolverines for the 17th time in a row. And yet, this insight does not always apply, says the court. That some restraints are necessary to create or maintain a league sport does not mean that all aspects of elaborate interleague cooperation are. You can come up with all manner of things that would obviously be illegal that don't have anything to do with how many players are on the field to actually play a football game. The NCAA's rules fixing wages for student-athletes fall on the far side of this line. Note the number of references here in this 9-0 opinion that talk about it as price-fixing, as fixing wages, as things that are most obviously illegal in most contexts. And consider for yourself what that's trying to signal for where the Supreme Court might go when, it seems inevitable now, every other restraint on compensation will be challenged in the court on this basis. Even if background antitrust principles counsel in favor of the rule of reason, the NCAA replies that a particular precedent ties our hands. And this is where the rubber hits the road, folks. The NCAA directs our attention to Board of Regents, where this court considered the league's rules restricting the ability of its member schools to televise football games. On the NCAA's reading, that decision expressly approved its limits on student-athlete compensation, and this approval forecloses any meaningful review of those limits today. Note how the court describes this. On the NCAA's reading of a case from 1984 about television rights, some things said in that case decades ago forecloses any meaningful review of those limits today. And as the court succinctly says, we see things differently. Board of Regents explained that the league's television rules amounted to horizontal price fixing and output limitations of the sort that are ordinarily condemned as illegal per se. Just like all the references to price fixing and labor markets that we've seen in this particular decision, those would be illegal per se in many, many, many contexts. While Board of Regents did not condemn the NCAA's broadcasting restraints as per se unlawful, it invoked abbreviated antitrust review as a path to condemnation not salvation. Hey, NCAA, says the Supreme Court, you're right, you did get a quick review last time, but you were on the wrong side of the bell curve. If a quick look was thought sufficient before rejecting the NCAA's pro-competitive rationales in that case, as the court says, it is hard to see how the NCAA might object to a court providing a more cautious form of review before reaching a similar judgment here. Now, to be sure, the NCAA isn't without a reply. It notes that in the course of reaching its judgment about television marketing restrictions, the Board of Regents Court commented on student-athlete compensation restrictions. More particularly, the NCAA highlights this passage, and we're going to read it. But the NCAA has used this passage conceptually in many places and as a bulwark against objections to the way it treats its student-athletes and the way it runs its business. And the quote is as follows. The NCAA plays a critical role in the maintenance of a revered tradition of amateurism in college sports. There can be no question but that it needs ample latitude to play that role. Remember that ample latitude phrasing from the district court? Or that the preservation of the student-athlete in higher education adds richness and diversity to intercollegiate athletics and is entirely consistent with the goals of the Sherman Act. 
Now, before we get into what the Supreme Court has to say here, I thought a definition might be useful. I think you've heard me use it a number of times, but let's take a look at the definition of dicta. Dicta is a phrase you've heard me use. It says, opinions of a judge that do not embody the resolution or determination of the specific case before the court. Expressions in a court's opinion that go beyond the facts before the court and therefore are individual views of the author of the opinion and not binding in subsequent cases as legal precedent. So we've talked about it. We've talked about what the court does here. But any court can only decide the cases or controversies before it in, in most instances. There are exceptions to everything. Thank you, lawyers. You can leave your comments to this video below. But courts can judge cases and controversies, which means when you get weird things said by a judge, when you get things that don't relate to the actual case before them, they are useful potentially as metaphors or analogies. I just did a video here in virtual reality about using references uh, to Hamilton or references to the Bachelor's Rose Ceremony or how bad the Disney Star Warses are to illustrate your point. Those don't have legal power. The courts below that court that says the Disney Star Warses are terrible don't have to only hold that the Disney Star Warses are terrible. They can instead have their own opinions on the terribleness of the Disney Star Wars enterprise you get language that doesn't relate to a case or controversy at hand. And as you see the Supreme Court describing boards of regents here as a television case, which it was, it's clear that this kind of notion is dicta. As the Supreme Court continues on the NCAA's telling, these observations foreclose any rule of reason review in this suit. Once more, uh, we cannot agree. Board of Regents may suggest that courts should take care when assessing the NCAA's restraints on student-athlete compensation sensitive to their pro-competitive possibilities. It might suggest that that second hurdle of the rule of reason is a little bit more easily obtained by the NCAA because the court has historically looked at it as something that is a legitimate pro-competitive possibility. But these remarks do not suggest that courts must reflexively reject all challenges to the NCAA's compensation restrictions. Student-athlete compensation rules were not even at issue in Board of Regents. And no, they were not. So the NCAA took a bit of language here that was ambiguous, but useful for the NCAA and took it all the way up to the Supreme Court. And instead of winning the day, instead of winning anything, the NCAA instead got pages and paragraphs and all the rest of these references establishing that this means nothing in respect of the rule of reason. So whatever kind of cloud of ambiguity they could have relied upon before this morning, they can no longer rely upon. They lost this 9-0, but this isn't the big case that the NCAA is worried about in the next year or five or 10. What is important about this is that they were idiots to appeal this up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court smacked them down and didn't just smack them down, but took their precedent behind the woodshed and said, no, that's not precedent at all. Also, it's a case from 1984. As the Supreme Court says, whether an antitrust violation exists necessarily depends on a careful analysis of market realities. If those market realities change, so may the legal analysis. When it comes to college sports, there can be little doubt that the market realities have changed significantly since 1984. And then they bring up all the money that the NCAA has made. Given the sensitivity of antitrust analysis to market realities and how much has changed in this market, we think it would be particularly unwise to treat an aside, another phrase for dicta, in Board of Regents as more than that. NCAA, you brought this up, you relied upon it clearly as part of your case. It's the reason you appealed it. 
and we are going to eviscerate it and it will have no value for you any further, which means it's open season on the rest of your rules at the district court, court of appeals, and maybe ultimately Supreme Court levels. Remember, the district court was trying to use some of that 1984 language, saying, oh, okay, they're amateurism. They get a broad protection for it. Supreme Court says, now that means nothing. Evaluate it as to what's being presented because the market now isn't the market then. And that was dicta about a television case in any event. The NCAA submits that a rule of reason analysis is inappropriate for still another reason because the NCAA and its member schools are not commercial enterprises and instead oversee intercollegiate athletics as an integral part of the undergraduate experience. And this reminds me of YouTubers or other content creators finding me in my DMs or my social media or elsewhere and trying to explain to me that whatever they're doing is fair use because it's not commercialized in the same way that the uh, copyright laws are designed to protect against it. The NCAA comes here and says, hey, hey, you know, sure, we've got those antitrust laws. And the antitrust laws, they, they don't really say anything about nonprofit institutions or educational missions or anything like that. But uh, we, we've got nonprofit institutions, we've got educational missions, and uh, sports is really important to the undergraduate experience, which means the rule of reason shouldn't apply, Your Honor. The NCAA loses this because the Supreme Court can't help but laugh at it for paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs. To the extent the NCAA seeks to propose a sort of judicially ordained immunity from the terms of the Sherman Act for its restraints of trade, that we should overlook its restrictions because they happen to fall at the intersection of higher education, sports, and money, we cannot agree. This court has regularly refused materially identical requests from litigants seeking special dispensation from the Sherman Act on the ground that their restraints of trade serve uniquely important social objectives beyond enhancing competition, and they give pages about when they've rejected it, and also noted, essentially, you're asking about sports, and we've rejected people that are doing much different stuff, engineering buildings, performing legal services, medical services, and we didn't give them special dispensation, and we're not giving you special dispensation. And as I said at the top of this video, this is a function of how a court is supposed to operate. The orderly way, as the court says, to temper the act's policy of competition is by legislation and not by court decision. The NCAA is free to argue that because of the special characteristics of its particular industry, it should be exempt from the usual operation of the antitrust laws. But that appeal is properly addressed to Congress. Until Congress says otherwise, the only law it has asked us to enforce is the Sherman Act. And that law is predicated on one assumption alone. Competition is the best method of allocating resources in the nation's economy. And this leads into a whole other set of conversations because the Supreme Court now is signaling 9-0 about how they are currently thinking about the antitrust laws. And it doesn't make any guarantees for future antitrust decisions at the Supreme Court level, but it does suggest that there's an overall agreement with what is said here by the court, that this is what the Sherman Act requires. This is how the court has dealt with it historically and how they should be dealing with it in the future. Because you can agree with the 9-0 decision. You can concur with the decision of the court. You can say the NCAA loses, but you can give different reasoning. You can add your own concurrence if you're a justice of the Supreme Court. And nobody did that except Kavanaugh, who basically said we didn't go far enough, uh, but also appeared to acknowledge that that case wasn't actually before the court. Kavanaugh's uh, an interesting writer. While the NCAA devotes most of its energy to resisting the rule of reason in its usual form, uh, the league lodges some objections to the district court's application of it as well. So the first part of the NCAA's case, and the one the Supreme Court is most concerned with, is they try to get out of the rule of reason. The Supreme Court says, no, 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 you don't get out of it and forget all this dicta, and the rule of reason applies to you. And then the NCAA has a small portion of its case saying, well, you also applied the rule of reason incorrectly. 
we get the description of the rule of reason here, which I've already covered in this video. But they do note that these three steps do not represent a rote checklist, nor may they be employed as an inflexible substitute for careful analysis. The district court held that the student athletes had shown the NCAA enjoys the power to set wages in the market for student athletes' labor. The district court proceeded to the second step, asking whether the NCAA could muster a pro-competitive rationale for its restraints. And the NCAA complained about that particular step. And then we get some more interesting thoughts from the court. Court says, we agree with the NCAA's premise that antitrust law does not require businesses to use anything like the least restrictive means of achieving legitimate business purposes. To the contrary, courts should not second guess degrees of reasonable necessity so that the lawfulness of conduct turns upon judgments of decrees of efficiency. That would be a recipe for disaster for a skilled lawyer will have little difficulty imagining possible less restrictive alternatives to most joint arrangements. And this might sound to you a little bit of dicta, and it might be depending on exactly what the next case or controversy before the court actually is. But here you start to have fairly profound readings of the antitrust jurisprudence of the Supreme Court and the judiciary in general. And when you're thinking about things like Apple versus Epic, when you're thinking about the rule of reason and how it should be applied at the district court level or ultimately at the Supreme Court level, it's important to understand the distinction that's being made here, which is that that third level, you don't have to stop doing what you're doing just because it's not the least hurtful to competition. It has to be significantly less hurtful to do something else. And the plaintiffs have to prove that something, but you aren't required as the business operator to do what is the least restrictive means of achieving your business purposes. And the court rightfully points out that's because any given lawyer at any given time can come up with 25 different ways that a business could function and we'd be guessing at what that would actually affect in the marketplace. After all, even under the best of circumstances, says the court, applying the antitrust laws can be difficult, and mistaken condemnations of legitimate business arrangements are especially costly because they chill the very pro-competitive conduct the antitrust laws are designed to protect. To know that the Sherman Act prohibits only unreasonable restraints of trade is thus to know that attempts to meter small deviations is not an appropriate antitrust function. The antitrust laws are not a scalpel to be used by the court and judges to tweak things. You shouldn't be taking the 30% that Apple charges and making it 29.5%. That the courts can't make these kind of central planning moves because they're not good at them. The trouble for the NCAA in this particular case, the court says, though, is not the level of generality. They were fighting over what they had to prove at the district court level. It's the fact that the district court found unpersuasive much of the evidence that they've offered. The court did find some of the rules may have pro-competitive effects to those compensation prohibitions unrelated to education. But the court's judgment ultimately turned on the key question at the third step, whether the student athletes could prove that substantially less restrictive alternative rules existed to achieve the same pro-competitive benefits the NCAA had proven at the second step. The district court granted them a certain concept of amateurism. And this is the decision the NCAA decided to appeal. In a related critique, the NCAA contends the district court impermissibly redefined its product by rejecting its views about what amateurism requires and replacing them with its preferred conception. But none of that means a party can relabel the restraint as a product feature 
and declare it immune from Section 1 scrutiny. In this suit, as in any, the district court had to determine whether the defendant's agreements harmed competition and whether any pro-competitive benefits associated with their restraints could be achieved by substantially less restrictive alternative means. And I highlighted this language for a specific reason, because again, if you're thinking about technology, if you're thinking about other applications for this, the NCAA's slow motion suicide is unpreventable at this point. They're going to get sued six ways from Sunday based on some of the language in this case, certainly some of the language from the Kavanaugh concurrence. And they're going to see those lawsuits, I would assume, very, very quickly. But the law does uh, move slowly. But you also get signaling from the Supreme Court about important stuff that we've talked about in this space in virtual reality, such as this kind of relabeling notion. If we think about Apple and wanting to protect a walled garden saying, well, maybe we can do these kinds of things because it's important to our consumer facing side to sell this product, which I tend to agree with as an overall business focus, you still see the Supreme Court giving some leniency to the epics of the world by saying, well, you can make the argument that they're just reframing what is an illegal concept for purposes of their product. You cannot relabel a restraint, an illegal one, as a product feature and declare it immune. In this suit, as in any, the district court had to determine whether there was a substantially less restrictive alternative way to do what the NCAA sought to do. And that could be applied to a lot of enterprises in the United States and elsewhere. While the NCAA asks us to defer to its conception of amateurism, the district court found that the NCAA had not adopted any consistent definition. In fact, the Supreme Court is rejecting here their ability to find different facts because the district court actually found that the NCAA failed to define this thing on which their case was resting. And that's the NCAA writ large for you. Once more, we broadly agree with the legal principles the NCAA invokes. As we have discussed, antitrust courts must give wide berth to business judgments before finding liability. Judges must be wary too of the temptation to specify the proper price, quantity, and other terms of dealing cognizant that they are neither economic nor industry experts. In short, judges make for poor central planners and should never aspire to the role. Again, they're rejecting everything the NCAA is saying here, but what is the court actually doing? They're going and making clear that they think that the courts, which they are the supreme leaders of, should not be sticking their head in the tent and changing tiny things in business. The proper price, quantity, and other terms of dealing Judges must be wary of addressing those kinds of things. They're poor central planners. And also the NCAA, you're still wrong. Even if we were poor central planners, this isn't something that is central planning related. Even with respect to education related benefits, the district court extended the NCAA considerable leeway. As we have seen, the court provided that the NCAA could develop its own definition of benefits that relate to education and seek modification of the court's injunction to reflect that definition. The Supreme Court here is saying, look, you're appealing this decision and the district court really wasn't even that mean to you. They just gave you a little bit of a slap on the wrist and otherwise allowed you to define what was going to happen in the future. And yet the Ninth Circuit affirms the original decision and you bring it to us and you are big, big losers. As the Supreme Court finishes, some will think the district court did not go far enough. By permitting colleges and universities to offer enhanced education-related benefits, its decision may encourage scholastic achievement and allow student-athletes a measure of compensation more consistent with the value they bring to their schools. Still, some see, will see this as a poor substitute for fuller relief. At the same time, others will think the district court went too far by undervaluing the social benefits associated with amateur athletics. For our part, though, we can only agree with the Ninth Circuit. 
The national debate about amateurism in college sports is important, but our task as appellate judges is not to resolve it, nor could we. Our task is simply to review the district court judgment through the appropriate lens of antitrust law. Everything from the Ninth Circuit to the Supreme Court was bound by the findings of fact at that district court level, but that district court based its findings of fact on dicta and relationships of a case from the 80s that would seem to no longer apply. This is a bigger loss for the NCAA than simply 9-0, and that's the reason why, and they did it to themselves. They didn't define amateurism. They relied on a definition that didn't exist to bring their case. They fought a case that was all but unwinnable based on language that didn't relate to a case from the mid-1980s in a market that looked vastly different from today, and they brought it up to a court that now has on the record broad, sweeping generalizations in language about when antitrust shouldn't be applied to better establish why they're applying it to the NCAA, sure, but which language will be used in any number of antitrust cases in the United States to come because that language is so strong and forceful about judges and the courts and the role the courts should have in evaluating these kinds of things. In fact, it wouldn't even surprise me if language from this case or other antitrust cases got put in to Epic versus Apple that's being decided right now in California. And then we get the concurrence. Just in case you thought the NCAA didn't do badly enough, you thought, hey, well, you know, Rick might be overblown here. The NCAA lost 9-0, but ultimately it wasn't killing all of their restrictions. It's just education benefit stuff and they can define it, et cetera, et cetera. Then you get some signaling from one specific justice. Now, important things to note here, right? We talked about dicta. This is undoubtedly dicta. What Justice Kavanaugh is going to talk about wasn't before the court. And also it's worth noting that nobody signed on to this with him. Now, there are reasons to say that the court probably has overall concerns about the NCAA uh, and the way it's operating. The opinion suggests as much, but none of the other justices were willing to sign on to this specifically. Some for reasons that might be because they don't agree with him, others because this is completely not related to the case before them and there's no need to sign on to it if you're not so inclined as a justice of the court. But here's what Kavanaugh says. I add this concurring opinion to underscore that the NCAA's remaining compensation rules also raise serious questions under the antitrust laws. First, the court does not address the legality of the NCAA's remaining compensation rules. It's important for Justice Kavanaugh that you know that they didn't affirm them. They didn't go and say the NCAA's rules here are okay. They just didn't pass judgment on them because it wasn't before the court. Second, although the court does not weigh in on the ultimate legality of those remaining compensation rules, the court's decision establishes how any such rules should be analyzed going forward. After today's decision, the NCAA's remaining compensation rules should receive ordinary rule of reason scrutiny under the antitrust laws. The court makes clear that the decades-old stray comments about college sports and amateurism made in Board of Regents were dicta and have no bearing on whether the NCAA's current compensation rules are lawful. As a result, absent legislation or a negotiated agreement between the NCAA and the student-athletes, the NCAA's remaining compensation rules should be subject to ordinary rule of reason scrutiny. They don't get special treatment by virtue of a case in the mid-1980s. And finally, once they're getting ordinary treatment, there are serious questions whether the NCAA's remaining compensation rules can pass muster under ordinary rule of reason scrutiny. The NCAA acknowledges that it controls the market for college athletes. The NCAA concedes that its compensation rules set the price of student-athlete labor at a below market rate. And the NCAA recognizes that student-athletes currently have no meaningful ability to negotiate with the NCAA over the compensation rules. The NCAA nonetheless asserts that its compensation rules are pro-competitive because those rules help define the product of college sports. 
Specifically, the NCAA says that colleges may decline to pay student-athletes because the defining feature of college sports, according to the NCAA, is that the student-athletes are not paid. In my view, that argument is circular and unpersuasive. The NCAA's business model would be flatly illegal in almost any other industry in America. All of the restaurants in a region cannot come together to cut cooks' wages on the theory that customers prefer to eat food from low-paid cooks. Law firms cannot conspire to cabin lawyers' salaries in the name of providing legal services out of a love of the law. Hospitals cannot agree to cap nurses' income in order to create a purer form of helping the sick. News organizations cannot join forces to curtail pay to reporters to preserve a tradition of public-minded journalism. Price-fixing labor is price-fixing labor. And price-fixing labor is ordinarily a textbook antitrust problem because it extinguishes the free market in which individuals can otherwise obtain fair compensation for their work. Businesses like the NCAA cannot avoid the consequences of price-fixing labor by incorporating price-fixed labor into their definition of the product. Or, to put it in more doctrinal terms, a monopsony cannot launder its price-fixing of labor by calling it product definition. The bottom line is that the NCAA and its member colleges are suppressing the pay of student-athletes who collectively generate billions of dollars in revenues for colleges every year. Everyone agrees that the NCAA can require athletes to be enrolled students in good standing, but the NCAA's business model of using unpaid student-athletes to generate billions of dollars in revenue for the colleges raises serious questions under the antitrust laws. In particular, it is highly questionable whether the NCAA and its member colleges can justify not paying student-athletes a fair share of the revenues on the circular theory that the defining characteristic of college sports is that the colleges do not pay student-athletes. And Kavanaugh is discussing something that isn't at issue here, right? Because the actual compensation restrictions never made it all the way up to the Supreme Court because the student-athletes dropped their case. Kavanaugh clearly would have voted for them based on this particular concurrence, but it wasn't at issue. So all of this is essentially setting the playing field for what comes next. He also suggests some other ways the NCAA could lose. Of course, these difficult questions could be resolved in ways other than litigation. Legislation would be one option, or colleges and student-athletes could potentially engage in collective bargaining or seek some other negotiated agreement to provide student-athletes a fairer share of the revenues that they generate for their colleges, akin to how professional football and basketball players have negotiated for a share of league revenues. Hey, NCAA, you could always let them be employees and collectively bargain against you. What do you think? As Kavanaugh finishes off, traditions alone cannot justify the NCAA's decision to build a massive money-raising enterprise on the backs of student-athletes. The NCAA is not above the law. Now that is a very fiery concurrence. It is definitely dicta, and it isn't signed by any other justices. A point that Mark Emmert, the president of the NCAA, actually brings up uh, in a tweet that I found from Dan Lust at Sports Law Lust. Highly recommended. If you are interested in sports law, following him, he does a uh, podcast and series, Conduct Detrimental, that talks about all these things. He's also a good follower just because he has very funny tweets about various sports news items. But in an interview with USA Today Sports, NCAA General Counsel Scott Beerby and outside lawyer Jeffrey Mishkin said little weight should be given to what Kavanaugh wrote. The notable thing is that eight other justices did not agree with that and wouldn't sign on to it, Mishkin said. So I don't think that you can make very much of that concurrence. It's its own view, and he's writing for himself. So I think that's just not at all central to what's been decided today. And to be sure, it's a concurrence. It's not the main decision. But one does wonder what would have happened if those student-athletes had appealed it up to the Supreme Court, because there certainly appears to be a sense that the NCAA is teetering on the brink. And without even the 1984 shield to cover them in these kinds of cases, 
I do think that the NCAA's decision to appeal Alston, in which they really didn't lose anything, might wind up being a significant aspect of their ultimate undoing. This has been Virtual Legality for today. If you like these kinds of conversations, deep dives into big Supreme Court cases, and really, if you're interested in sports law, nothing could be bigger than Alston from today. Please consider supporting the channel. We've got a Patreon, Streamlabs, a store uh, with which you can buy things. Every little bit helps because uh, this does take a lot of time, and I think we're having a lot of fun and educational and informational contact. Otherwise, just subscribe. Tell your friends. Tell them that we're having these conversations and that you, too, can enjoy an hour-long episode about a recent Supreme Court case if you so decide to do it. If you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.